0: Dancers have a lot to balance. From their pirouettes to their jumps, a dancer's performance is a direct result of hard work and motivation. So where does food fit into this? There's a lot of myths and a ton of antiquated ideals about what a dancer's diet should look like. And I'm here to dispel those. I'm Rachel Fine registered dietitian nutritionist and founder of to the point nutrition i'm the dance nutritionist and i'm here to tell you that to be a successful dancer you don't have to diet instead i'll teach you how to use food as your best tool to enhance your performance a nourishing meal plan not only fuels your dancing but also enhances your strength improves your balance, supports your flexibility, and most importantly, reduces your risk to injury. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Pretty good, can't complain. Sydney, thank you so much for doing this and for coming on live with me. Just side note, i pretty sure it doesn't get cooler than getting married at Strand. I've been following you since your wedding planning and- I mentioned that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> so Sydney, you are the expert of yourself. So why don't you just give us a nice uh, introduction of who you are so anyone who's just tuning in can have a better idea.
1: I am Sydney Magruder Washington. I'm a dancer, uh, a writer, actor, advocate, musician, uh, D all of the above at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and just like everybody else, I'm navigating my way through this pandemic and seeing what coming back looks like, if coming back makes sense. Um, and trying to see what will be different on the other side of this for, uh, on every level of our industry. And it's, it's hard to tell at this point.
0: Yeah, it's also a major anxiety point, I think for for me at least, right? Oh,
1: 100%. I, I don't like to think about it, yeah. um, obviously for this, but um, part of the draw of going back is seeing friends and being back in community. Um, with people you know and love and you know doing what you're supposed to you feel you're supposed to be doing but it's also i think everybody's anxious about what it looks like to get back how they're going to feel and look and i think that's more of the anxiety than anything
0: absolutely so sydney we are going to cover some a couple different topics but i'd love to start with something that you are very vocal about on your account and that's disordered eating do you remember the you know this pivotal time when you started to connect the idea that food w- did have some impact on either the way your body looked or how your performance was in class
1: you know what it was actually for me personally it was it was food until much later i think it was just the idea of difference and otherness and being you know, one of few black faces in a room, the older I got the, you know, the more alone I was. Um, But it was, it actually wasn't necessarily food for me. It was more of the idea of, oh, without regard to what I eat, my, you know, not regarding food at all, my body will be different. And that was more of the problem than anything. The disordered, like the disordered eating or the kind of tip into disordered eating didn't come until I was actually much older. Hmm, interesting. it like a teenager versus knowing and seeing that I was physically different as young as seven or eight. um, And kind of not tipping into disordered eating or kind of realizing that disordered eating was an option even until I was probably 14 or 15.
0: Yeah, so the disordered eating was almost just like this secondary tool that kind of um, erupted later on. For sure. (laughs) And I
1: think that as it as it erupted, I realized, oh, well, if I can eat differently, maybe I'll lose weight. Maybe I'll look more like everyone else. And that obviously was an unsustainable goal an unsustainable ideal. And I think that is the great kind of failure of our, of our discipline as a, as, as a global phenomenon. I think the great failure of our discipline is this kind of homogenized ideal of a female body.
0: 100% and how much of that is rooted in white elitism and oh. the, the, <laughs> oh. I mean the, the mere fact that you know to like what you said to have what is quote unquote ideal in our mind to be so unrealistic not even just for a white dancer but I mean very much for a black dancer who oh.
1: and even the black dancers who have that physique naturally are still are are kind of weaponized against other Black dancers because, well, she looks like that, why can't you? We are two completely different people with two completely different sets of genes. You know, like, I think I've seen that more than I've seen anything, especially recently, um, when you have Black dancers who do fit the ideal, either just by natural genetics or, you know, they have struggled with disordered eating, but, you know, nobody's gonna say that out loud, um, pitting Black dancers who have that physique naturally against Black dancers who do not. and. That is that is even that's a whole separate level of a conversation but i've seen that happen more often than i'd like
0: that's really interesting i wasn't even really aware that that was happening to be honest you, with you no <laughs> you right.
1: know by virtue by virtue of you being white you would have no real way of doing that and that's the <laughs> thing that we as black dancers bring to our white friends necessarily not because we don't trust you not because we don't love you but because you fundamentally will not understand purely by virtue of you being white like uh-huh with, you know, the depth of a friendship or how well someone, how well you know someone, that is one of those things that as Black dancers, we kind of tend to keep to ourselves because that is another level of what we're dealing with that you might not be dealing with.
0: Yeah. I have this white privilege. I also have major thin privilege. I want to be this voice in helping dancers. But at the same time, I really will never um, be able to understand at its core what it's like to. Be different in regards to being different in skin color or having a different type of body, and I think it's important to have voices who are just really being the um, the the shifters in our industry.
1: And you know what I think? What I think is kind of wild here is that the in the our discipline has distorted it so much that I am the voice, and I have major thin privilege too. I can walk into any store I want and buy clothes. Yeah. I, I worked at Yumiko for three years two years I worked at Yumiko for quite some time and you know I have a box of leotards sitting in my closet that I bought from there so the fact that I could be framed as a voice for dancers with non-normative bodies is absolutely ridiculous not saying that your assertion is ridiculous but it's ridiculous you know that I could even stand here and have the audacity to claim I would never claim that but you know to even have the audacity to do that is proof positive of how distorted our industry's body standards have become. Yeah. Because there was, and there were times when, I, I'll never forget this, when I first met um, my now wife, when, I, when we first met and I was telling her some of the dreams I had or the thoughts, I remember telling her that I wanted to be a plus size model because I thought I was plus size. And I was probably about 20 pounds lighter than I am now. And that years ago, I was. we met when I was 20. I was 20 and I had the, you know, I was thin. And Mm I thought that because of what I was surrounded by and because of what I had seen, that I would have to, if I wanted to be a model, which was, you know, a thought I once harbored, if I wanted to model or participate, that I would have to do so in a quote unquote plus size capacity, which is ridiculous, which is absolutely ludicrous. And the fact that I'm not the only person who felt that way, I know other black dancers my size and my and you know close who felt that way is
0: ridiculous. And I mean just a matter of how skewed not just the I mean yeah the dance industry but let's like let's look at diet culture. I've been doing a lot of of my own anti-racism work just over the this past year and it is so fascinating for me to honestly learn and admit that so much of what I learned through my dietetics program and I know a lot of other white dietitians feel this way as well is also so rooted in colonialism and white supremacy that it's you know even I I have been having to reshift a lot of my recommendations just as a dietitian for dancers in order to um, step away from this idea. I mean even just as a just as a prime example, uh, the my plate what the government has constructed as being my plate where we kind of have like our proteins and our carbohydrates and our fats like all separated into these sections that in of itself does not represent various cultures and how they eat so even that is so rooted in colonialism and it's really it's really been very eye-opening for me honestly as a white dietitian to start learning about this and learning that so much of what I learned I feel like I am now honestly having to reteach myself a lot um, as I move forward in this career.
1: And that's the process for anybody and i think the you know the kind of secret that nobody wants to admit is so much of what we so many things that we've built as disciplines um ballet dietetics from you know any lots of what we've built as disciplines are built on white supremacy and if we dismantle those we lose the discipline as we know it i think the courage has to live in what does the what does a reimagined discipline look like and are we the answer to the latter question is of course we aren't um but is it possible yes are we ready for it absolutely not i think individually there are people who stand out as being kind of you know light bearers in that way and standard bears you know to that end but i think as a general audience are we ready for it are we ready for a dismantled and or decolonized version of the things we love
0: absolutely um you know, this idea also about reclaiming what we know, whether that means reclaiming the word fat or reclaiming what it means to have this idea look. Um, And I think it's really interesting what you're saying is how, you know, there's a disconnect right now, especially in the dance industry between what the audience is ready for versus what dancers are ready for. And, you know, hopefully we can see progression like you said yeah there are some individual dancers who are beginning to change this conversation but is the industry really ready for it is is the audience ready for it that's i think what's going to be even harder to have to change
1: i think moving forward there we're going to have some serious clashes over that like Mm -hmm. serious. like i heard i i heard someone say recently they were like i'm not buying season tickets to anybody's season at the met until i see a 12 uh, until i see a size 12 girl on stage I was like you're gonna be waiting a while just being well, honest. Sure, sure. I would love that I would yeah. love that. but if we're being if we're keeping it a hundred if we're keeping it you know a buck it's gonna be a minute before that happens not yeah. nobody's ready for it but because the powers that be move at such a glacial pace that I'm not sure I think my children will be old enough to <laughs> our children will be old enough to take to the Met and see you know performances by the time that happens and part of me is not super i don't mean to be fatalistic but part of me is not super hopeful about that uh, yeah. so much of what we love about ballet and what is beautiful about ballet is predicated on an audience's idea of the ideal woman and ideal beauty but i think it's interesting that so many of these choreographers there's lots of choreographers out there who say they love a womanly body, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but then don't cast these womanly bodies or the womanly bodies they cast um, could still probably convincingly walk a runway. Sure. You know, and like, it's been odd to me to kind of watch that, like change a little bit over the past few years. Like, you know, when I think it's odd that when we think of curvy dancers, we think of women who could still convincingly walk a runway
0: yeah
1: and like when we and when we think about but this also calls into question what the idea of success is as a dancer when we talk about successful dancers and you know it doesn't just mean employed a lot of the time it means employed at the met or employed at abt or employed at city ballet or at one of the you know major regional companies around the country what we consider success as a dancer also kind of has to change because it's not just ballet it's modern dance too you know there are lots of modern companies that have looked the exact same for the last 40 years. And that's a problem. You know, if your company isn't reflecting the city or the times or the nation, then you need to step back and realize, and think about what you're doing. And I think you know, we kind of hold up some of these companies as being uh, suitably diverse, but you know, all the women could share clothes in that company if they wanted to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and also, it really questions the idea of how accessible is something like dance to the wider audience. And this is something that I spoke with Evelyn Tribble on Friday night, who's the co author of Intuitive Eating. And she brought up a really good point. You know, this movement that's not quite in the dance industry, it's really pushing back on diet culture, the health at every size or haste movement what it's about is access and bringing more access to other populations. And it's not just the varying body types, but it's also underserved populations, um, right? And I know you do a lot of advocacy in that realm as well.
1: Now, there's a gap there though. We are, ballet is, we are really moving towards excellence in terms of access, you know, reaching underserved and let's just be clear whenever people whenever white folks talk about underserved they mean black and brown children uh, they mean poor and working-class black and brown children right. uh, LA is moving towards uh, a standard of excellence in reaching underserved populations the gap comes when those you can you can go into I'm, I'm originally from the DC area so I'll use my area as an example um, I'm not from the hood but you know I know where it is mm-hmm. so, when the Washington Ballet goes into Anacostia, the Anacostia neighborhood and teaches black and brown children ballet, you know, you're teaching six and seven and eight year olds, the fundamentals of ballet, of course, it's wonderful. Of course, they're good at it, they're small children. What about when those black girls become young black women? What about when those black girls go through puberty, earlier than white girls, because that is the medical, that is, you know, the medical truth in this country for a lot of at this point in time, what happens when those young black girls who were successes and stars in your six, seven, eight, nine year old class, go through puberty, become black women who no longer have the body you consider standard. Sure. That, we're not we are, you know, countries all around the country, I don't, you know, companies all around the country, I mean, um, are moving towards a place of just mm-hmm. excellence and kind of, you know, enthusiasm with reaching young children of you know, poor and working class children of color, especially. But what happens when, their bodies no longer look like what you consider appropriate for ballet. That's the problem. Like we're, we're, not, we're not having a problem reaching people anymore. That's not the issue. You know, re, you know ballet is almost, I, I would argue that ballet is more accessible, you know, as, a, as an art form, both visually and, you know, the practice of it now more than ever. But it, the gap comes at that. And we, that's when we really need to get into the ugly conversations about black bodies, you know, and we're talk, I'm talking specifically as a woman and as a girl, Um, because that's my experience, but Mm -hmm. black girls and women in their bodies versus a ballet, a balletic ideal that nobody wants to talk about that. They love posting these pictures of these beautiful little black and brown children getting, you know, you know, a classical ballet education. Where do those black and brown children go after they no longer?
0: That is so interesting and such a good point about the idea. Again, something that I haven't thought about that gap, that major gap. In, in age differences of where you're seeing with these black and brown children in regards to starting at a young age, not hitting puberty yet, um, eventually hitting puberty, like you said, at usually a, an, an earlier time, yeah. and than, than their white peers. Um, and then there being this this disconnect. And what happens from there? Where is the access at that age? You know, where is the diversity and um, the representation? So talk to me a, That's little, bit,
1: uh, a little bit. So far, access. Yeah goes as far as, you know, ballet is willing to bend its its body ideals. So this child, may, this little girl may be in your program from the time she's six until she's 11. But by the time she's 11, she's blossomed, she's growing into a woman, and she does not look like the woman you want on stage. And so that is... You know that, the, and the children you see in these programs do not become the black dancers that they have in these companies, very or in very rare situations, extremely rare. And it's normally not at these major white companies. Dance Theater of Harlem has, you know, pioneered outreach, and they're and that's why children stay in their school. They go, they you know, come into the company. Dance Theater of Harlem is is the is the paramount in that regard. But when we're talking about other similarly prestigious companies you know they kind of fall out after a certain age and i think that's what nobody is going to say no one's going to say that oh we you know we have a certain body standard that everybody cannot fit and these children that we spent the last few years building our advertising on and building our fundraising on do not fit and that's the issue. i think there will be no and it's cyclical this is this is what this is what systemic racism does to our genre you know young black girls often go through puberty this is and this is this is you know this is science i'm not just you know pulling this out of my like young black girls go through puberty earlier than white girls because in many situations the quality of their food is not as good as that of their white peers especially when you talk about um poor and working-class neighborhoods single parent homes there's a lot of factors that go into that but because the quality of their food is not always as um as as good or as uh as closer to organic as that of their white peers the hormones are likely to you know sure. send earlier and so and that is systemic racism that is generational poverty that is generational trauma and that, all of that ends with this very sweet little nine-year-old girl wondering why she can't be accepted to the school when she's been taking ballet these last you know four or five years is good at it loves it and now they're telling her she can't go i've seen it happen i've seen I- it happen. Absolutely. I'm prevented from you know, telling the story because this is somebody's life, obviously it's somebody's personal business, but I've seen, I have watched it happen with my own two eyes. And I have watched other black girls be admitted because they are this big and have stayed this big. And then have watched them be devastated when puberty finally does come and they no longer fit. I have seen people get, I've seen young dancers, we're talking 15, 16 years old, all of a sudden puberty hit. They were the darlings at YAGP two years ago. All of a sudden, puberty finally hits when they're 15, 16, and now they don't dance anymore because they weren't getting parts or they weren't getting the same attention. I have watched it happen over and over again, and it infuriates me every single time. Um, but that's what that's what happens, and that's what nobody wants to say or talk about because it's painful and it's personal, and it feels like your body has betrayed you. Absolutely. And- is watch that happen to somebody so young, like 14, 15, 16. These are babies. Like, I think in ballet, we adultify these girls so young because they have so much responsibility and ballet requires so much discipline, but they are small babies, like they're 14, 15, 16 years old. Like, m- are they mature? Sure. Are they, ment- are they mentally and emotionally like mature for their age? Sure, but they're still children. 100%,
0: yeah. Uh, you know, it's so interesting because even, um, there is a certain level of privilege. uh, And one of the reasons why one of the first questions I always ask just anyone who I'm interviewing is, you know, when did diet culture infiltrate you or infiltrate your life in any which way? And I think there's a certain level of privilege um, for a lot of white people out there where diet culture has not infiltrated until they're older, until they're older. And exactly what you're saying is that's not the case with um, black and brown children.
1: And I think in our communities, it's also it's. It's very different, there's been lots of studies on the differences in body image perception between black women and girls and white women and girls and what our body standards are in a black householder versus what they are in a white household. Now, I came from a household in which, you know, my mom was very size conscious, you know, was kind of always dieting, unfortunately. And so I, from a young age, I grew up with a fat phobic attitude for sure. not my favorite thing obviously we you know we plan on doing differently with our children but it was the you know that was the truth of my existence and you know i was a chubby kid and i got a lot of heat for it from like family members friends dance teachers um and it's actually interesting when I was 12, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which later we found out was with Asperger's syndrome with the autism spectrum disorder, but I was prescribed Adderall and which I've, you know, had for my ADHD for, you know, many years now. So whoever I saw that right after I hadn't seen for a while, my old dance teacher from my, from my studio, the first thing she said to me, keep in mind, I'm 12. The first thing she said to me, she was like, you look incredible. What happened? Oh God. And I couldn't answer her. I was 12 Great. and I didn't i wasn't necessarily paying attention to all the
0: weight that i lost but
1: all of a sudden i was cute again
0: oh god yeah
1: and so the you know i think the danger of diet culture when it comes to our children is teaching them that the size of their bodies is not only worth note like worth knowing or mentioning but something that can change the way people treat you yeah i hate that a lot and so i think that is even outside of dance, I think the dangers of diet culture there when it comes to our children are more than obvious
0: hundred percent and I also hear from a lot of parents really get very nervous about the idea of the word fat I
1: am, I am flying by the seat of my yoga pants here friend I have yeah especially if I have I, what makes me nervous, my wife and I keep joking that we hope we have a boy first uh, because I can handle I can handle talking about a body with a boy yeah. If grow up to be he will grow up to be a man if he inherits my genes he will probably be you know bulky and muscular that'll be fine he's a boy
0: right right.
1: yes i am so nervous to have a daughter of my own even though i've always wanted a little girl i'm so nervous because i don't know how to not talk about weight and looks with her in a way that is not damaging i'd rather just not mention at this point i was telling my wife the other day i was like i'd rather just not mention it i'd rather not even have her looks be a thing yeah Uh, but i'm also like there's i know that there will be a certain amount of privilege because she's probably going to be thin she probably will be you know that's just the reality of genetics that's how that works um and it makes me nervous i don't want her i don't want her to think she's better than anybody because she's thin i don't want her to think she's better than anybody for any reason i don't want to give her a complex about her body and like there are books out there that i plan on reading the minute i find out i'm pregnant <laughs> that like I- Teach me how to do that. But that is something that like that keeps me awake at night is thinking, you know, how do I how do I give my daughter confidence? How do I give her? How do I not give her a complex about her body? How do I just teach it, teach her how it works and how or how it's supposed to work? You yeah. know, proud woman, you know, how do I do that versus kind yeah. of what was done with me? Yeah, my parents, teachers, you know, everybody.
0: Yeah. It's not easy. I will say I have, you know, my, my son is four. My daughter is still is six months. So the interesting thing is that my son came home from school. It's so about like a couple weeks ago and starts, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's four years old. Starts kind of like pointing to things and saying the word fat and laughing. So this is something that came from school. This is not something that comes from my house. I was, yeah. And I'm like, okay, now I'm thinking to myself, okay, how do I, how do I like, figure this out now because I, I don't like this and it's not that I don't want him using this word I I want to teach him that this word is not necessarily a bad thing so and that's what I'm trying to do um I can control what's in my household I can't control what's in school and and that's what kills me I think that's what makes me nervous too what I trust though
1: is my instinct as a mother to fight anybody who <laughs> like you know yeah. brings that to my child um, like that's what what I trust as like as you know as I kind of prepared to shift from you know just Sydney myself to Sydney somebody's mama (laughs) like is my my instinct to just go straight to the mat with whoever brings that to my kid because and I plan on like something I was talking to my wife about again weeks ago thinking that like I'm gonna set that boundary early with everybody it's like fat is not a bad word in our house fat is not a bad word around our child if you fat I will hit you like there's you know there's very I, you know we plan on setting very clear boundaries yeah around. I think that is what is crucial because you can't control every environment your kid is going to be in and I think that brings us even back to ballet it's like how do you inst- if you're going to if you end up having a child who pursues ballet how do you send them into the studio every day knowing that their body is enough just as it is yes that change anything and that the minute somebody says something to them they walk out the door like the the courage to walk away is I think what I did not have in a lot of situations as a young dancer, what I only developed as an adult, like not even just like an adult, like 18 or 21. I'm talking like maybe 26 or 27 and I'm sure. I'll, now like thinking about in, when do when do I have the power to walk away? The answer is every single time. Like, when do I have the power to leave that room and leave that conversation and leave that influence for my own well-being and for my own mental health? And I think that's what my wife and I are very, very intentional about passing on to our children is the, you know, especially when it comes to their bodies or their selves, their confidence, you know, anything that we would consider either a, you know, mental, emotional or moral hazard to them. Yeah. And that. I had in every other in every other area of my life that's something I had is like the current like you know I was very goody two shoes as a kid like if something was going wrong I knew that I I, you know what I'm leaving I'm out bye like there was in which I knew something was wrong and I didn't want to be a part, so I just walked out and that was my parents moral instruction for me but when it came to things about my body or my self-image or my confidence, that kind of thing, I didn't feel like I had the power to walk away. So that's something I feel like I'll have to teach very intentionally to our kids.
0: Okay, and I think that there's also two things here that I just want to talk to you about is the courage to walk away and build like a, a suit of armor against it. But then what about the next step? What about the courage to actually have a voice, which is what you're using your platform for? Like that's a whole nother it's a next it's a next level it's, it's a next a- of interacting
1: i think and i think but it also depends on the personality of your child or the personality of whoever it is you're coaching or mentoring you know like i've had mentees in the past i have i've had students you know i've taught and so i think you have to that this is a situation where you really have to know if, if, if you're talking about yourself you really have to know yourself and what you're comfortable with and if you're talking about your child or your student or your mentee or whomever you have to know them it's like are they Are they better off walking away now and bringing it up in private later or are they better off just flaming the whole situation right now (laughs) are they better off just like you know just straight savage right here right now like just they love chaos (laughs) that kind of thing yeah
0: yeah and, and the unfortunate truth about just to really bring it into the dance industry is just the hierarchy of power and I think a lot of younger dancers probably more so younger black dancers, black and brown dancers being truly fearful of the idea of speaking out.
1: I think, and I think that is, that is fading out a little bit, I feel like I'm seeing, but I do, I have seen that in my time, maybe when I was that same age. Right. I am am oddly, I'm not a fearless person, but when something is wrong, like I have a very hard time not saying something or not at least up in the moment like I'll remove myself from a situation but then you know I will flame you on social media or I'll you know I'll <laughs> smoke, you, smoke you in person you know we'll, I'm a Scorpio we're, we're just mean people <laughs> um, but I use my I try to use my powers for good yeah um, I think the issue nowadays and by by nowadays I actually mean pre-COVID because I think since the pandemic and since the events of last summer that people's patterns are changing especially black dancers our patterns are changing we can't afford to be silent anymore right. we're you know sick and tired it's a sick and tired of being sick and tired situation yeah. but pandemic i can't tell you rachel over the years how many dms i've gotten you know this racist incident happened to me i don't know what to do you know this person you know the person who said it is in charge of giving out roles for nutcracker blah 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 you know i heard that story repeated time after time after time after time from these young black dancers who you know are otherwise dynamic young women who are scared to speak up to their almost always white sometimes also male directors and teachers who have an influence over you know the roles they get in nutcracker or the roles they get at the end of semester and that, we, we know how that can make or break a career or a summer intensive prospect or, you know, anything. And I think these, a lot of these older white directors are skating by because people are too scared of them. And we saw that kind of firsthand with City Ballet a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are too scared to tell these, to tell these white men, I'm not the one. <laughs> but when a black woman does it, it's combative, it's sassy angry. And I think that threw people that threw people for a loop with me because I'm not an angry person. You know, I I also my privilege here is that I'm thin and small and light skinned and Mm -hmm. you know well educated. So my voice saying I'm not the one and that's not okay sounds different than a bigger girl or a darker skinned girl or you know a less well-educated girl. That like so my voice saying this is not okay, you are going to be held accountable sounds very different from the people who actually need to be able to say that. Because, you know, we're talking, we're sitting here talking about thin privilege. I am a, I'm a black woman, but I'm, I'm light skinned. Yeah, you know, I move through the world with a different, you know, interaction with men, with white men, with black men. You know, white men do not fear me <laughs> when I walk up to them, but white men are trained to see darker skinned black women in a different light. So mm-hmm. when I get into that space and I'm telling you it's not okay, maybe you're going to listen to me. And that is that is the point. That's the problem. And I think me being able to say that and op- not necessarily I, I don't take any credit for anybody's eyes being opened. everybody, you know, you have control over your own viewpoints and your, right. your- But I, you know, I wonder if darker skinned dancers and but darker skinned dancers do speak up. Let me be very clear. Darker skinned dancers do speak up, but they're thin. Sure. I have yet to see I have yet to see a truly plus size if that's the terminology we're using. I have yet to see a fat dark skinned ballet dancer speak up about anything. I have yet to see a fat dark skinned ballet dancer in any of the places I want to see her, which is everywhere. Yeah because of all the reasons that we've discussed up to right now, but it depends you know, who is speaking up is just as political as speaking up itself. And so it you know, we kind of we find ourselves stuck, I think, as a discipline and as an industry with well, how do we change who's making these decisions, you know, who gets to be in those rooms. And, you know, Takia Wallace McMillan, the founder of Brown Girls du Ballet, she and I, she and I have been in a lot of meeting rooms together. You know, we have heard a lot of BS from a lot of folks. Um, and we'd be here all day if I told you some of the things we heard and I can't even tell you some of the things we heard, but black people need to be in those rooms is what I'm saying. You know, I black people need to be in the decision-making rooms of places like ABT, places like City Ballet, places even like the Royal Ballet in London or, you know, the Royal Danish. Black people need to be in those rooms and in those spaces Challenging what we think of as a normative ballet body because we don't get people are like, well, where are the, you know, where are they? They're here. You're kicking them out of your program because yeah. they gave you. Sure <laughs> Like that's the truth. You're, sure. kicking, you're kicking them out of your
0: programs You know, it's a Exactly. It's a matter of getting them on the boards, right? Yeah. To, to play a role and and to not be um, saturated by the you know the privileged white male stereotypical artistic director that's fascinating Sydney when did you really start uh wanting to or maybe it happened naturally using your platform for exactly this to somewhat even though as you're saying you know it maybe it feel like as some bit of a privileged voice but when did you start to do that I think it's hard to pinpoint it felt like
1: at the time it felt like a natural progression it's a hard to pinpoint when or if anything you know triggered me to start saying more about what i went through or what i was seeing other people go through because at the beginning you know i you know i have no i have you know very few secrets in terms of like you know what i'm going through or what i'm dealing with but at the beginning if you scroll all the way back to the beginning of my instagram i was deep in my eating disorder, deep in diet culture. I was talking about all the weight I lost. I was talking about having a normal ballet body. And after, I, I want to say, maybe I was getting, I'm not even sure it happened until after I got married or maybe close to my wedding, because I realized, I think two things, I'm not sure if these either of these things are necessarily like the, you know, the catalyst for what happened, but two things I th- can think about happened. I went to buy my wedding gown and it was, my wedding gown is hanging in my closet. I can show you the tag if you don't believe me, but it and I remember having two feelings at that moment. I was so proud of myself. Why am
0: I proud of that? And what does that mean? Like, I just. To even get to that point and to actually sustain that, was that even something that was possible? It was not fun.
1: (laughs) It was certainly not. And then I remember I had a, I had a coaching session with a dancer who I very much respect. I won't name her out of respect for her privacy, but I had a coaching session with a dancer who I very much respect, who is about, not necessarily twice my age, but older than me, um, like probably, you know, 10, 15 years between us. And I was talking negatively about my body and how much I hated it and how much I wanted to change it. And she looked up at me with tears in her eyes. She was like, you know, just don't let don't let your periods lapse don't let that happen and i was confused because we hadn't been talking about that and i was wondering and she was like don't sacrifice your ability to have children
0: Ah. Mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. that hit me like that hit me like a ton of bricks because she then told me she was like there's a reason my husband and i don't have kids oh wow i suffer i you know sacrificed my body on you know this altar of yep. that ideal body and yeah. now children and that scared the absolute shit out of me and i was like because all i've ever you know i've had other you know per, professional or academic ambitions in my life but at the core of my you know purpose on earth i have always always wanted to be a mother like sure. since that that was my first desire as a child was to be a mom and to hear her say that her passion for ballet and her and she one of the most incredible dancers i've ever seen it's a it's wild that she never got signed with like a bigger larger major company but one of the most incredible dancers i've ever seen she didn't even have the idea she didn't even have the typical success we talk about as a ballet dancer she had other successes surely you know she danced with smaller companies and was incredible but to have not even reached that peak of success that we consider as ballet dancers and to have sacrificed her ability to have children for it i was like nah I can't do it, this ain't it. I was, I, at that moment, I was like, oh, there is no way. There is no way. And I became frightened. I was like, if I, if I ever came to a point where I couldn't have children because of what I've done to my body in the name of ballet, I would never forgive myself. Right. I, those two moments for me were like, "May I should be looking at things differently.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's, you know, pretty, I don't, I don't know if this is the best word, but lucky to have someone like her open your eyes in that sense it was it was it was fateful I'll say that it
1: was it was fateful to have her open my eyes that way to use her tragedy to instruct me essentially Um, and part of me you know looking back now with kind of a clearer perspective on a lot of the last eight years looking back now I wonder I continue to wonder if I was truly happy as a dancer because so much of this, you know, this last year has been so difficult for all of us, but I have had so many like personal, you know, kind of revelations and, you know, spent a lot of time with my wife, got to spend you know lots of time at home doing other things that I love and have experienced, you know, thinking that like, this is great. Like this might be where bliss is for me. Don't think I, I'm not sure that I ever felt that way when I was dancing. And that was a wake up call for me thinking that like, wow, I spent a solid portion of my life doing something that I had to, you know, kind of beat my body into submission for that wasn't making me 100% happy, hoping that success would make me happy, that the journey was not fun. It gave me discipline. It gave me a lot of gifts. It was not all bad. That's for sure. I made friends that I will have for the rest of my life, you know, random random bodily talents, like picking shit up with my feet, like, you know, random stuff like that.
0: Um, You'll be holding a baby, picking stuff up with your feet at the same time. (laughs) You know, it gave
1: me it gave me so much, but it also took so much from me. And I think what I am always telling younger dancers is the minute it starts to take things from you is the minute you need to consider whether or not you want to stick around.
0: Oh my God, I love that so much because I can relate to that on a personal level. Like when I look in hindsight to when I was dancing full time and the amount of, um, I guess, I guess pain is the word of my own body dysmorphia, never feeling like I'm enough, never that word success, you know, how we define success. If only I had known what I know now in the sense that it's you can have a fulfilling career without perhaps dancing in those major companies. Um, You can have aspects of your career feel very fulfilling. I just wish I saw that while I was dancing full-time because I think I would have been such a better dancer. I was always just, I always held myself back. In that literally yesterday, I was
1: thinking like, wow, if I had had the kind of abandon not abandon, but like the freedom that my body has experienced in this pandemic, like wearing wearing You know, leggings all day long, hoodies every day, just chilling, like, you know, just really chilling hard this entire pandemic. Like, I, and, you know, kind of eating whatever I felt like, you know, and I'm not like, I'm not somebody who like kind of pigs out on things. I I just like an ice cream cone twice a week instead of just on my birthday. Like, why did I ever have a rule? Like, my number one favorite sweet in the world is donuts. Mm. There's a, like, last year, right before everything shut down, a donut place opened up around the corner from our house. Which one? Absolutely delicious. Super nice. Um, it's up here in Harlem. And they, they opened, I want to say they opened right before everything shut down last year. But like getting donuts once a week instead of waiting, instead of having to wait a year between donuts.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So dumb. Like, <laughs> I, like mm-hmm. previously had a, I previously had lots of rules around food. Yeah. And so I only ate, a, I had one donut every year on my birthday and that was it it is my number one favorite food in the world. Why was I like restricting that? And that really brought it all into perspective. And, you know, I kind of had to apologize to my wife for all the ways that, you know, my my career, my passion as a dancer has kind of derailed and, you know, upended our life and I, I caution young dancers with that too. They're like, if you don't fix it before you get into a long relationship with someone, it's going to come back and bite you in, you know, in different ways because everybody's different and they have different relationship dynamics, but like it will take over your life in the most insidious and unexpected of ways. And when it comes, you know, when it comes back to you, you won't know how to deal.
0: Yeah. Also, the importance of this going into kids and not wanting one thing uh, when I had my son almost four and a half years ago was I was like, I need to, I need to make sure whatever, because even by the way, again, dietetics being so drenched in white privilege and white elitism, um, you know, every dietetic student has is going through the program with their own journey of disordered eating. And I remember when I got pregnant, just this idea of like being thrown into intuitive eating and because I physically couldn't follow these rules anymore that I had for myself. And yeah. Uh,
1: I'm kind of looking forward to being pregnant for that reason. I was like, this will also allow me to accompany my body on a journey of creation of the one thing that I have always truly wanted, you know, and having that be, you know, having a healthy baby be my reward for losing those rules and losing, you know, that kind of battle with whatever disordered eating I've, I've, you know, been dealing with my entire life. And to have a whole brand new outlook on my body and what it can do, like that. Look, actually looking forward to makes me nervous for sure but also looking forward to it
0: yeah you know you realize how selfish it can feel when you're amidst all of these food rules and disordered eating and then when you're going through something like pregnancy and realizing that it's not just about you anymore and you are you know creating this life uh these uh, your whole perspective can change in regards to your relationship with food but also most importantly your relationship with your body right yeah. and i'm it makes me nervous I'm not sure
1: because my because my body, like everybody else's, has changed during the pandemic. You know, another larger change of growing a whole human being from scratch is going to be big. Yeah, big for anybody, but it will be big for me because of you know what I've been through personally. I'm looking forward to it, but I also have to you know there's points in your life where you have to get really still and quiet with yourself and wonder and like kind of face whatever it is you've been dealing with for this, for your sake, but
0: also for the sake of your child. Yeah, sure. Sydney, I honestly can talk to you all day. (laughs) I can talk to you all day. (laughs) I have a question though. Um, You know, just for any young dancers who are listening, um, this is a bit of a loaded question, but do you have maybe one or two pieces of advice for them if they are, um, whether they are feeling oppressed in any way or, you know, at this pivotal point where they Don't know if they want to speak out or continue to dance. Any any piece of advice that you can give? Talk to a trusted older
1: dancer. If you are black, talk to a trusted older black dancer. If you are Asian, talk to an Asian dancer. Latino, you know all that. If you are if you are in that space, talk to an older dancer who you trust, or find an older dancer who you feel like you can trust and pour your heart out because it's not going to do you any good to be quiet about what you're dealing with. Parents aren't always going to understand. Parents are wonderful. Obviously some parents have, you know, better, deeper, stronger relationships with their young people than others, you know, but if you are the young dancer in question, be discerning, think about the adult who is least likely to judge you, who will be, you know, kindest to whatever your fears are and go find them and say, I need to talk to you. It's important. I just need you to let me just dump all of this on you because it's not going to do you any good to keep it in. and right. Want to and if you don't feel like you can talk to an adult, come find me. I'm you know I'm on the internet. (laughs) You know I, you know have had lots of DMs over the years from young dancers who are like I'm not sure what to do at this point, and I've been able to either you know point them in a direction that makes sense or just sometimes you just have to sit with somebody in their grief and in their you know suffering until you figure out what the next logical step is. Sometimes you just need a witness. You don't need a problem solver, you don't always need a fixer. Sometimes you just need a witness. And that matters just as much as somebody who can fix or somebody who can help. Um, So find that person. And, you know, if it's your best friend, I, I recommend seeking out somebody older because your if your friend is your age mate, they're likely to be going through some similar stuff. And that's not always, you know, two storms kind of make a hurricane. So that's not always the best idea. I recommend finding someone older who has either been through what you've gone through or who you think will just be, you know, helpful or useful and just be honest, be for real, you know, admit whatever it is that you've been hiding, you know, find somebody that you can be completely, totally non-judgmentally honest with, Yeah. get you through, because you can't hold that all by yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow, thank you so much, Sydney. This has been incredible. I, I really cannot thank you enough for your time um, and for helping me address these issues, because as I said, I'm learning myself uh, in my own anti-racism work. Uh, and you have been, you've honestly played a big role in that, in just me following you. So anyone who's listening, I really do encourage that you go over and follow Sydney, because it's also just not about, uh, your platform's about so much, you know, being part of the uh, gay community as well. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about that, but maybe- uh, if- one. <laughs> <laughs> These are such big issues that they deserve their own conversations
1: that yeah, they are. I'm so glad that we had time to make this happen. We will definitely do another one. Um, I'm glad that we've been on the internet together all these years, <laughs> and it's so good to see you succeeding at you know making this you know this world of eating, this world of disordered eating, and this you know the world of becoming a whole person aside from your relationship with food and with it, and including a relationship with food. It's been so good to see you really succeed at that. I'm so proud of you.
0: Thank you, thank you, Sydney. Likewise, and we will talk soon. Okay. Yes. Bye. Bye.